According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Turn to Matthew 15 as we get started. Matthew 15. And if you want to turn to two places, you can add Mark chapter 8 to Matthew 15. In Matthew 15, it's the uh, last part of the chapter here, verses 32 through 39. And then in Mark 8, it's the very first part of the chapter, Mark 8, verses 1 through 9. And I can even fold some pages over like that and look at them simultaneously. Isn't that cute? All right. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that each believer priest is equipped with the Holy Spirit, prepared to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and the privilege and blessing that it is to assemble together to receive instruction. We thank you for the opportunities that this day provides for the ladies to come together in prayer and to, uh, Father, we recognize the, the value of that prayer time and the ministry of the women, older women to younger women and the encouragement of one another. Father, we thank you for this, uh, this Bible class and the Life of Christ series has its own unique uh, flavor, its own unique uh, blessing for those who are available to be here today. Father, we pray for distractions to be set aside and for your word to go forth and accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. We claim the promise it will not return void. And Father, in many cases, we, uh, we can see what it's doing. In some cases, we can't. But in, in all things, Father, you are the one that is at work uh, in and through us for your good pleasure. And we thank you for that. Father, for our study today, we ask for you to open the eyes of our understanding and particular don't allow us to fall into the trap that uh, this episode is a repeat this episode is uh, is uh, a previous miracle that he'd done before so what's the big deal father open our eyes to see that there is a very big deal with respect to this and and uh, and bless us in this study today we thank you in Christ's name amen the feeding of the 4,000 is largely overlooked and sadly you can read some commentaries to that effect and uh, the commentary authors themselves will uh, will write, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but basically, uh, we covered everything there is to cover when he fed 5,000, so just review that and we'll move on to the next paragraph. And uh, sadly, even some very solid uh, scholars have minimized this particular episode. So let's take a look at it. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 32 and you realize that this comes on the heels of the healing ministry that we studied last week, where there were great crowds that were coming to him and he was healing them. This is in the region here of Decapolis and uh, on the southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. The disciples said to him, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to feed such to satisfy such a large crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and fish and giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they all picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat, came into the region of Magadon. All right, that's the Matthew record. The Mark record in Mark 8, verses 1 through 9, largely identical. Uh, the region that's mentioned at the end is slightly different, but that's not uh, a contradiction. It's just two different names for the same general area. Um, verse 1, in those days when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. 
And he directed the people to sit down on the ground and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve them. And they served them to the people. Then verse seven, they also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. In the Mark record, it appears that there were two separate courses. There was the bread course followed by the fish course with a separate prayer each time. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. All right, so this is the incident. We've read both texts now, the Matthew text and the Mark text. Let's get some outline points to break it down and also show you some of the study. I was showing this to Gary a moment ago before the prayer meeting broke up, and he walked in. Some, and this is very small. I expect if you're in the back row, you won't be reading the text. <laughs> All right. Uh, but I figure while I'm still young and have the eyes, I, I need to do stuff like this. The, uh, the feeding of the 4,000 are the four blocks to the right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, on the top, uh, I can get my drawer out here. The, uh, these blocks here on the right. You got Matthew. Uh, underneath Matthew, you got Mark. Then to the right of Matthew, you've got Luke, and then underneath Luke, you've got John. And uh, this was the kind of study I did when we were doing the feeding of the 5,000. One of the few events that's actually recorded in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. There's, there's not that many events that are covered by all four Gospels. And so in doing that study, uh, it was helpful to put all four windows up side by side so you could see the texts uh, adjacent to one another for comparison and contrast and things like that. Well, now that we're moving on to the feeding of the 4,000, it's an event that's only covered by Matthew and Luke, or by, I'm sorry, by Matthew and Mark, I went ahead and put those windows on the left. And so we've got six windows now arranged on the screen at the same time to be able to look at everything um, in uh, sequence, everything in, in parallel with one another. And uh, by putting the feeding of the uh, 5,000 here on the right, and by putting the feeding of the 4,000 there on the left, we actually end up with a separate window or a separate block of four that if you consider this block right here, you notice what you have? If you consider this block right here, you end up with uh, Matthew on the top and Mark on the bottom. And they're right next to each other, so you can compare the feeding of the 5,000 to the feeding of the 4,000 in, in Matthew's record and in Mark's record. And since, since uh, the feeding of the 4,000 is not included in Luke or John, went ahead and put those off to the right. So depending on what it is you're actually studying, if you want to study the feeding of the 5,000, then you look at those four windows, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But if, you, if you're studying... The feedings, both events simultaneously, you want to contrast Matthew with Mark, then you can look to the, the block of four there on the left. Anyway, kind of the fun I've been having over the last couple of weeks looking at, uh, looking at these incidents. All four Gospels record the feeding of the 5,000, but only Matthew and Mark record the feeding of the 4,000. This is your first point of study. There's nine things we're gleaning out of this episode. And many of them are going to be contrasts with the previous feeding that we have uh, already studied. All four Gospels recording the feeding of the 5,000, what I'm simply calling F5K. You see the abbreviation on the screen. How many times do you really want to write down feeding of the 5,000, right? Just call it F5K and you're done. All four Gospels record the feeding of the 5,000. But only Matthew and Mark record the feeding of the 4,000. Now, there's a lot of liberal groups out there. I'm going to read you a quote here in a moment that think this event didn't happen. Or they think the feeding of the 5,000 didn't happen. Or somehow something happened. He fed a whole bunch of people, but they weren't sure how many. And the stories are all confused, which is why two of the Gospels kind of recorded two different stories but got the numbers mixed up and two of the gospels didn't bother recording the other story they just put the one in there that they liked the best where he fed the most see this uh, at the end of the day this miracle was kind of wimpy because it was a lower number of people with more loaves to start with and fewer leftovers and so it seems like an inferior miracle it's, this miracle is not as miraculous and we'll give that to you as a point of study as well in fact it's the ninth point of study 
So the liberals really have a field day over this, and they use this to attack the Bible, to attack God, which they don't believe in anyway. And I think you'll see, you'll see a flavor of that here in, uh, in this study. So only Matthew and Mark record the feeding of the 4,000. Liberal theologians view this event as a conflation of two separate incidents. And go ahead and write it down that way under point two. Liberal theologians. They're not going to like being called liberal, but they're stuck with the label because that's what they are. And uh, they, they think that they're modern. They think that they're um, cutting edge in terms of their source criticism, in terms of their higher criticism, in terms of their views of Scripture as a whole. But they're fatally flawed. And it, and it shows up in passages like this. It shows up. And when you can get them to admit what they don't want to admit, you can smile and walk away because you, you can, in passages like this, you can get them to deny the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. You can get them to deny that God wrote the Bible. And you get them to confess their fundamental underlying belief that, that we don't really have a Bible we can trust. That what we have are oral traditions that were handed down through the generations and finally put in a written form that all kind of gathered together and, and homogenized into the accepted readings uh, in the early church, and now we have the heritage of that today. And that is a fundamentally flawed view of the Bible. I will read you one quote out of many that we can read out of this. But liberal theologians view this event as a conflation of two separate incidents. In other words, uh, two different things happened, and they kind of conflated them. They combined them together into an overall story. And uh, Luke and John left it at that. Matthew and Mark managed to communicate both of, the, uh, both of the separate incidents. However, Jesus specifically used both events as an instruction opportunity. And we have record of that both in Matthew and in Mark. If you glance down to Matthew 16... Next chapter over in verses 9 and 10, where he's warning them about the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, they begin to discuss among themselves, saying, uh, uh, he said this because we didn't bring any bread. And um, he calls the disciples, you men of little faith. We'll be dealing with that coming up next week. He says, do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you picked up, or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you picked up. How is it you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread, but beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he uh, wasn't talking about bread. He was talking about teaching and the warnings that they had to have there. So Jesus used both events and said, you had two chances to learn this. And now I've got to call you names, right? Oh, men of little faith. Uh, I just read the Matthew record. The Mark record is the same, although in Mark, when he grills them, he actually waits until he gets an answer from them. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, 12. And then when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? So Jesus remembered doing it twice. <laughs> Jesus didn't seem to think that, that this was a conflation of whatever. So your scriptures are not as confused as the modern liberal scholars think that the scriptures are. Here's the quote from the Word Biblical Commentary. And I love the Word Biblical Commentary, by the way. It's got great archaeological information, great linguistic information, some amazing insights into the grammar and the manuscripts. Uh, but it is fatally flawed in their source criticism and higher criticism approach. That's why uh, if you can read with discernment, you can be very blessed. If uh, you can't or you're in danger of being led astray into some tomfoolery, then I don't recommend this series to, to certain believers. Here's their quote. Although it is, of course, not impossible that there were two similar miraculous feedings, the data surveyed above seems more consistent with a hypothesis of one original event that came to be transmitted in two different versions, each with its own symbolism. That's basically what they come down to, uh, saying, well, it's not impossible that there were two similar miraculous feedings. And then they go on to describe, of course, how miracles aren't miracles, and they, they've got a problem with miracles anyway. 
Those are the liberal theologians for you. And you want to be on guard against that kind of approach. Uh, and you'll encounter it. Here's where you'll encounter it. You'll encounter it. They'll tell you that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. If you read anything about the JEDP hypothesis, just know you're talking to liberals. You're reading a liberal review. If uh, they talk about Q as a source document for the Gospels, you're, you're reading a commentary that's buying into the higher criticism and the modern liberal tomfoolery that uh, uh, doesn't think that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John actually wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we, we take issue with some of that scholarship when we encounter it. All right, now let's start to draw some contrasts. The feeding of the 5,000 crowd was predominantly Jewish, but the feeding of the 4,000 crowd is largely Gentile. This is part of the evidence for these being separate events. There's many more. I'm only going to give you uh, a couple, and the ones that I find to be significant. There, there's others, that, for instance, the vocabulary for the baskets is different, and I don't know that I want to build a massive theology based upon the kinds of baskets that were used. Um, but it is, it is a significant enough observation to take note of the fact that on the northern shore there was one particular style of basket that was used in that region. And in the southeastern region, the Decapolis region, there was a separate style of basket that was employed. Not that you build a massive theology on it, but it is remarkable for observing the distinction between the different regions uh, around the Sea of Galilee and which regions were more uh, fishing oriented and which regions were more agricultural oriented and why they had the different style baskets in, uh, in those two different regions. But the distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles is important. You remember here again in the Matthew 15 context, this crowd was glorifying the God of Israel. This crowd glorified the God of Israel. They were not a Jewish crowd. They were not native worshipers of the God of Israel. They were largely Hellenistic in the Decapolis region. They were uh, really uh, almost like America is in the sense of a melting pot or a, a cosmopolitan type of background where you had Romans and Greeks and Persians and Arabs and, and uh, all, all sorts of different groups. Uh, the Assyrians were really good at conquering people and then moving them to different places. And then the, the Babylonians kind of encountered that. The Persians encountered that and tried to allow people to return to their homeland. Well, by doing that, then you ended up with this mix mash. You ended up with this blend. You ended up with um, Samaritans living in a city that the Jews said belonged to them. And you end up with, with a lot of intermixture. Then, uh, of course, the conquest of Alexander, when the Hellenistic influence came across, that, that affected a tremendous amount as well. So that's what you're dealing with here in this Decapolis region, mainly Gentile uh, from all sorts of racial backgrounds, but mainly Greek that is Hellenistic in their philosophy, in their approach to uh, the world. So there's a contrast. There's other things. There's, there's details, for instance... In the feeding of the 5,000, he had them sitting on the grass. Uh, it was a grassy area where we're told that there was much grass there. In this episode, there's no grass mentioned, but they actually sit on the ground or on the earth. Uh, some of that is a geographical contrast. Some of that is a calendar contrast. The feeding of the 5,000 was around Passover time. This event was later in the summer where the, uh, the heat in that region has uh, affected how much grass might be around. There are some other slight differences, but uh, I think the Jewish versus Gentile difference is significant for a lot of reasons. First of all, because these disciples seem skeptical that Jesus is going to do that feeding miracle all over again. He may have fed 5,000, but they were mostly Jews. Uh, here is a crowd of Gentiles. Do you think he's going to feed a bunch of Gentiles? All right. So we'll talk about that as well. Likewise, here's another contrast. The feeding of the 4,000 is noteworthy for its duration. Three entire days, as opposed to the feeding of the 5,000, where only one day took place. When you go back and you examine the text, there's only one day that's mentioned. And come evening time, he's going to send them away, and he desires to feed them before they go. But here, three days have gone by. It's mentioned both in the Matthew record and the Mark record. In Matthew 15:32 and in Mark 8. In verse 2. And I find this to be the most significant in the, in the sense that in the, uh, 
feeding of the 5,000, the, the crowd themselves were starting to depart and uh, not willing to stay overnight, not willing to stay multiple days, uh, going to head back to their homes or wherever they could find food to eat and things like that. This crowd, though, didn't. Some of them had come from some great distances. And rather than trying to return to their home or go into one of the cities, uh, it's, it's called here a desolate place, and yet Decapolis is the region of ten cities. So how far are they from the nearest one of those ten? Even if they came from the furthest one, how far are they from the nearest of those ten cities? How far are they, if they, if they are going to go scavenge for food or they are going to go try to purchase a meal somewhere, um, they could possibly do so, and yet they choose not to. They choose to stay on this, we're not even told it's a mountaintop, but they choose to stay in this region. They choose to stay here because this is where the teacher is. And so they stay the night. And they get up the next morning and they stay the next day. What are they doing that whole time? Studying. The Lord's teaching. And they go into the night and they sleep again. And they get up the next morning. And you wonder, how, how late did these sessions get? How much teaching did they receive in these three days? When, you know, when we have a Bible conference in the last three days, we get several teaching sessions, but I don't think we get as much as these guys were getting. You know, if we start when the sun comes up and go until the sun goes down and then longer, we can go longer. We got modern, you know, electricity and lights. I guess they could have lit torches or lanterns or something. I think they got a lot more teaching in, in uh, those three days than we would get in, in our typical three-day conferences we would stop for meals right we'd say okay now it's the time for the dinner break and either host something here or go out to a restaurant come back for the evening sessions things like that they weren't stopping for meals we recognize in the vocabulary here that they had nothing to eat and you wonder how much longer would they have gone they're already at the point of fainting here but as long as class is in session they're not going anywhere and the positive volition expressed by these Gentiles, I find to be um, humbling when it comes down to it. We find this overseas, too, in the, uh, the hunger that, that uh, you find, well, I've gone two places now, the Philippines and Ukraine twice, but you find that they'll, they'll just sit there until you're done. And they're not asking you to be done. And, and they're not going to go anywhere until, until, you know, it's obvious that you're done teaching and you've left. And then they'll go wherever they're going to go. But they'll stay there for hours and hours and hours. And, uh, and I'm told, I've never been to Africa, but what uh, Bob Thompson tells me is you go to Nigeria and they'll stay there for hours and hours on end. You know, what else are they going to do? They, they don't have, you know, all the entertainment and other goofy frivolities that we have. You know, if, if, if you're in that village and, and available to teach Bible class, that's, what, that's where they're going to be. And so the duration on this is remarkable. Both Matthew 15 and Mark 8 make, uh, make mention to the duration. They have remained, imperfect verb, they have remained with me now three days and have, that is, in the present time, continuous action, nothing to eat. See, nothing to eat. I don't know how long you've gone fasting, and I don't want to know. That's none of my business. But... The idea that staying uh, this period of time, the Lord fasted 40 days, Moses fasted 40 days, um, fasting for three days is, is not impossible or it's not outrageous. But the idea of then uh, following up a three-day fast with, say, a 30-mile a uh, walk back to your hometown, uh, you know, I've done a 30-mile road march, we did a 35-mile road march, would not want to do that on an empty stomach. We don't want to do that having uh, fasted for the three days prior. See, if you're going to do a 30-mile road march, you better be well-watered, well-fed, well-equipped, uh, prepared to do that kind of thing. Anyway, I find the noteworthy of this interesting because remember that feeding of the 5,000 crowd. What were they oriented to? I'll give that to you under point five. The feeding of the 5,000. Do you remember your abbreviation? The crowd that ate the loaves and was filled. The C-A-L-F. The feeding of the 5,000 crowd that ate the loaves and was filled became obsessed with a miracle repetition. And they desired to make Jesus their king. The satisfaction of their earthly appetite was their whole priority. That's all they were caught up with was feeding their bellies. The satisfaction of their earthly appetite was their whole entire 
priority. John 6.26. I find it interesting. They've stayed for three days. This, this group. This Gentile crowd of 4,000. They've stayed for three, for three days. Whatever food they brought with them was exhausted during that time. You know, I, I imagine before they left home, they had provisions. Probably had provisions for the journey there. Uh, intended, they either had provisions for the journey back or they intended to purchase something for the journey back. But whatever they had with them when they arrived by the third day is gone. And, uh, and yet, you see what their priority is. When he feeds them, what do they want to do? Do they want to make him their king? Do they want to keep him there? Do they want to try to get him to come and reign over Decapolis? Come be our Decapolis hidden king, what have you? No. He's the Jewish king. His throne's in Jerusalem. These Gentiles have, a, have an understanding on that. They actually end their, uh, their uh, time with the Lord by returning to their region. And uh, the indication here being glorifying the God of Israel, we're told, again, referring back to Matthew 15, 31, glorifying the God of Israel, recognizing that, that, uh, that his time in their region was complete. He was returning back to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they're moving on. Thankful that he was with them for that time, but they've got now to, uh, to spread the word themselves, just like uh, the evangelist formerly known as Legion. So many contrasts. Just by way of reminder, John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And they're hounding him. Wanting him to do the miracle again. They chase him all the way to the western side now of the Sea of Galilee. And they find him on the other side of the sea. They said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. They have no desire to hear another Bible class. They'll, uh, they'll tolerate it if they have to. But what they really want is for him to do that miracle again and feed them some more. Must have been some pretty tasty bread. You know, probably even better than Ethel's, I would expect. <laughs> and that's why they want, that's why they want to make him their king. And that's why he had to send the disciples away. Uh, verse 15 in that same chapter, John 6, Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone and uh He'd already sent the disciples away by sea, and he has to catch up to them by walking across the water there. So uh, it's, it's a contrast between these 5,000 Jews and the 4,000 Gentiles and what their reaction is, what their response is, and why it is that they keep begging him to do that miracle all over again. He even tells them in verse 27, Stop working for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. That's the food you need to get saved. These Gentiles are these Jews aren't even saved. And so uh, they, they wheedle him some more. And they say, well, what sign do you do? How about that, that manna provision again? That's, you know, uh, Moses did that. And uh, they keep trying to get him to repeat that bread-producing miracle. Almost to the obsession. And you wonder, what is this any different than church attendance today? When believers or nominal believers, let's just call them churchgoers, whether they're regenerate or not, Lord knows, but they become churchgoers based upon their appetites being satisfied, based upon what do they get out of it? Do they, do they come away from the assembly feeling good? Do they feel uh, you know, like they've got an uplifting message? Do they feel uh, accepted? Do they feel that, oh, this is, our, this is where we belong? See? Now, don't get me wrong. We, we do belong here. We have acceptance here. I, I have more intimacy with the members of this flock than anybody else in the universe because that's the nature of, of the ecclesia. We're fed the word of God. We're nourished. We're blessed. We're encouraged. We're also chewed out, right? <laughs> and, the, and even that helps us to feel like we belong. When, when the word of God rips us to shreds, we go, wow, I needed that. And we know that we're, we're, where we're supposed to be. And we know that this is where we belong. But see, the adversary can replicate elements of that. 
He can create a pseudo form of belonging, a, a, a club, so to speak, where you fit in and, and even where standards of legalism can help you fit in even more because you play the game better than the others do and you work hard at it in any event. I hope you understand what I'm saying in this contrast here. So I think this feeding episode is really illustrative of false motivations for a whole lot of different applications because it shouldn't be about how our selfish belly appetite gets satisfied. It should be about how the Word of God goes forth. Notice, though, the 4,000 crowd. The feeding of the 4,000 crowd... And it's not really fair to call them the crowd that ate the loaves and was filled. I'd like to rename this group because I think that they were the crowd that listened to the teaching and was satisfied and then, oh, by the way, also ate a meal as they departed. Because they weren't satisfied by the food that hit their belly. They were satisfied by the teaching they received for the three days. And then the earthly food that hit their belly and the leftovers they took with them, the, um, it was putting the cart behind the horse where it belongs. Having been nourished on the, on the Word of God for the three days, then, and being satisfied by that, then they received an earthly meal for their earthly need seek ye first the kingdom of god and his righteousness all these things shall be added unto you they uh, they allowed for the the icing on the cake as it were to truly be the uh the uh, above and beyond blessing they were satisfied by the teaching and that's a contrast so the feeding of the four thousand crowd disregarded their earthly appetite for three entire days of feeding on the word remember what the lord said in the temptation man shall not live by bread alone Man shall not live by bread alone. See, why did the, the feeding of the 5,000 incident only last that first day? Because they weren't sticking around for day two and day three. That crowd was going to go find food somewhere. They wanted their belly filled. This crowd stuck around for three whole days, at which time they became hungry. Nastus is the term. You know, when you look at the temptation of the Lord, he fasted for 40 days, and it was only at the conclusion of that fast that he then began to become hungry. Saying, again, I don't want to survey you or ask you what fasting you've done in the past. It's none of my business. That's between you and the Lord, according to Matthew chapter 6. But if you have experience with this, if you have engaged in any season of whatever length of fasting, and I do recommend that you designate the time before you start saying this is going to be uh, a three-day fast a seven-day fast a 40-day fast or whatever you do but designate it ahead of time make that commitment before the lord and then conclude it with victorious prayer at the end uh, don't just kind of leave it open-ended because then you know you get into it and then you start facing other temptations um, but then they become hungry and you find that when you're focused on the spiritual realm, which is what the fast is supposed to do, when you're focused on the spiritual realm, those other areas don't even, don't even come into your thinking. Oh, how about that? I am hungry. What do you know? Hadn't thought about it. So much so that they're in danger of fainting. Ekluo. Every Greek student learns luo is the first verb they learn because that's the paradigm for other verbs. But then you put the prefix ek on it and you're uh, in danger of falling out. You're on the uh, idea uh, and the, the danger of... of uh, Collapse, losing heart is the way ekluo is used in some applications. It's kind of worth, uh, let me pull that up, it's worth looking at, ekluo. And uh, they might faint on the way. Used in Matthew 6, um, 15, used in Mark 8. It's uh, used in Galatians 6, 9, where we're told that uh, we will reap if we do not grow weary. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not ek luo, if we don't fall out. It's kind of like, you know, this is why soldiers run in formation. You've got a, you've got a course to run, and you're not alone in running that course. And so you're running, 
And uh, whoever's calling cadence is calling cadence, and you're staying in step with your fellow soldiers. And the last thing you want to do is fall out. You want to stay with your soldiers. You want to finish the course. And so this becomes then the uh, the idiom for us in uh, in that application. Likewise, Hebrews 12, verses 3 and 5. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary, ekluo, and lose heart. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, and you're striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint, ekluo, when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. What a blessing. This is what the psalmist was testifying to last week in Psalm 119. Deal bountifully with me. He deals bountifully with his son. You and I get disciplined in ways that the unbeliever would never dream of. The father has no expectations for them. What do you expect? They're unbelievers. Dogs bark, cats meow, unbelievers do what they do. But sons should know better. Sons have a new nature. A nature that's being molded after the image of Christ. A nature that the father expects is not going to be uh, pursuing those unfruitful deeds of darkness. And so he deals bountifully. And that's the whole prayer in, in the Gimel file of Psalm 119. Is deal bountifully with your servant. Alright, so there's our text there. Neat concept on Ekluo. They're hungry and they're in danger of fainting. Danger of physically fainting. Trust me, they're in no danger of falling away in the spiritual walk. These are believers that are committed. He doesn't have to tell them to work for the food which endures to eternal life. He had to tell the 5,000 Jewish crowd that. He had to tell them that they're working for the wrong food. They're not even saved. And, and every time he gave them that message, they got more and more offended. Then he talked to them about eating, uh, drinking his blood. They get offended. He tells them to eat his flesh and drink his blood. They get even more offended. This crowd of Gentiles is already saved, positive to teaching. And you realize Jesus Christ and the disciples here in this episode are truly reaping an amazing harvest that was initially the work of Legion, the evangelist formerly known as Legion, who went back to his home country in Decapolis, started spreading the word about the Jewish Messiah that, that had healed him in, uh, in that cemetery. It's an amazing thing to consider here in this, uh, in this episode. All right, let's look at their skepticism. The disciples are skeptical. The disciples who participated in the feeding of the 5,000 expressed skepticism at the feeding of the 4,000. And this is why the liberals can't handle it. Because to them it's unreasonable. The disciples who participated in the feeding of the 5,000 Express skepticism at the feeding of the 4,000. Remember, they're the very ones that were carrying baskets back and forth to the crowds that fed the 5,000 and made the multiple trips. When they fed the 5,000, they were sitting down on the grass in groups, 5,000 men plus the women and the children, maybe up to uh, you know 12,000 people total or more. And these 12 disciples, each with their basket, are running back and forth, feeding everybody. Coming back to the Lord, seeing the miracle replicated. How many times did they see the loaves multiplied? You know, did he, did he start with five loaves and then all of a sudden, boom, there's 5,000? You fit 5,000 loaves in 12 baskets? No, because the leftovers filled 12 baskets. So they made repeated trips. And every time they came back to the Lord with an empty basket, filled it again. So they didn't just see this miracle once. They saw this miracle however many trips they made. From the Lord out to the crowds. And th now they're skeptical. We read it again in Matthew. Uh, the disciples said to him, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? See, this would be almost like, you know, the, the Exodus generation saying, how do we possibly cross this water? You know, well, duh, you know, you how did you do it the last time? Moses lifted his staff, the Lord parted the water, you walked through on dry ground. See. And, and when, when they got, 40 years later, when they got to the River Jordan, they weren't 
kind of scratching their heads saying, gee, how are we going to cross this river? Well, they're realizing their parents are, are all dead at this point, but Caleb and Joshua are still there, and they'd heard the stories. They knew how they crossed the Red Sea. And uh, likely some of them that were under 20 were maybe teenagers. They walked through the, the Red Sea on dry ground. Now they're standing at the River Jordan. And they're saying, hmm, how are we going to get across this water? No, they didn't doubt that at all. Why? Well, they'd already crossed the sea. What's a river compared to a sea? So they weren't doubting. And sure enough, Joshua raises his uh, staff. And just like Moses, Joshua replicates the miracle. The waters parted. They walked through the, the River Jordan on dry ground. Does that seem less miraculous than the Red Sea? A river as opposed to a, a sea? See? Well, anyway, however you look at it, the idea being that if they've seen it before, they should have the faith to see what's going to happen again. And these disciples had seen it before. They had seen feeding a large crowd. In fact, it was a larger crowd than this crowd. And they had less bread that time than they have this time. It is interesting. He says, how many loaves do you have? On the previous occasion, when he said, how many loaves do you have? They had to investigate. They looked around. They counted. They found that they had five loaves. This time, though, they're not investigating. They've got an answer for him immediately. How many loaves do you have? Seven. And a few small fish. They knew the count. Which leaves us wondering. All right. Are they really this clueless? Now, a couple of things we can say about that. Most of the skeptics, most of the liberals, those that don't believe this really happened or don't really believe the Bible means what it says. They, uh, they, they take this verse as proof that this event couldn't have happened. That, that the disciples can't really be that dense. That if... Uh, if if the disciples had been really present at the feeding of the 5,000, they would not have asked that question. See? And so they have, all they conclude is that, that uh, there weren't two separate events. There was only one event. This didn't really happen. But I believe there are explanations for why they could ask this kind of question. First of all, are they truly that dense? Are they prejudiced by the Gentile crowd? Are they prejudiced by the Gentile crowd? And so uh, we don't know the answers to these questions I'm giving you. I'm, I'm just giving you some, some legitimate things to ponder. But they are issues that could be explanations for why the disciples would be asking the question they're asking here. Maybe they're, maybe they're clueless. Maybe they're not accustomed to the Lord repeating a miracle. If you think about... The miracles that he's done. All right, he walked on water. How many times did he do that? Did he repeat it? He's done a variety of healings and repeated those healings. And yet, when he repeated them, and many times when he repeated them, he used different methods. Maybe he, uh, he spit and he made mud and he smeared mud on a guy's eyes. Or he just simply touched his eyes and the blind was healed. Or he just said the word and the blind was healed. Or he did the, uh, the wet willy thing we looked at, you know, and... Stuck his fingers in his ears. and It just seems that maybe there was different methodology each time that he did a miracle. He turned water to wine. Well, how many times did he do that? We're only told about the one. So it's conceivable that the disciples are thinking, well, Jesus doesn't repeat himself. And he already fed the 5,000. He's not going to do another big time feeding miracle. All right? Maybe they're thinking that uh, that Jesus is limited to, to, you know, one miracle, you know, one shot miracles. He's already done this one. Can't do it again. So where are we going to find where we're going to find food to feed these people? Or maybe in their mind, sure, he'd, he'll feed the Jews because he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's what he said when they were over in the Phoenician region. But why would he feed? Uh, why would he feed these Gentiles? Anyway, this, these are, are plausible explanations for why they would ask this question. It's not unreasonable for them to ask this question. If maybe there's a prejudice at work. If maybe um, they, and that's natural, by the way. Absolutely natural that they would view, he's the Jewish king sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And uh, that Phoenician woman was right. They're, they're Gentile dogs. The most they can expect are crumbs. Why would they expect to feast? And yet... 
the Jews have already feasted. What's wrong with feeding Gentiles now that the Jews have already feasted? He's already done the Jewish feast. Uh, are, are the Gentiles not expected to eat anything? There's a second way you can look at this. Or are they actually having fun and joking with the Lord? Are they actually having fun and joking with the Lord? Are they actually having fun and joking with the Lord? Because they know the answer. They know the answer. They've seen it before. They know what the miracle is going to be. They know that he can feed 5,000. And so this crowd is even smaller. And so now with tongue in cheek, are they saying, gee, I don't know, Jesus, where are we going to find food for all these people? Wink, wink, wink. Right? It's a possibility. Now, I don't think it is, but it is something to consider. It may be that they had caught on to the actual miracle, but they had not understood the, the actual purpose for that miracle or the content of what they were supposed to glean, which is why he tells them they're still clueless when he has to review both miracles with them. Again, I point you to uh, Matthew 16 when he warns them about the leaven of the Pharisees. And we'll deal with this next week. Uh, or Yeah, next week or the week after. But uh, he warns them about the, uh, in verse 6, Matthew 16, 6, Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss this amongst themselves, saying, he said that because we don't have any bread. We didn't bring any bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you picked up or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? He says you're confusing the literal picture with the reality that the metaphor is supposed to portray. So they still, by the time you get to chapter 16, they've not learned from the feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000 incident. They hadn't learned the doctrinal content. But it seems to me that they've caught on to the actual provision In other words, they've caught on to the miracle. They know that he's going to provide for their food, which is why they didn't bring any loaves with them. Think about it. How much much do you have to pack if Jesus is just going to provide the bread for you when you get there? Right? You don't have to pack anything. You pack a loaf and he'll just multiply it. Think how convenient that is. That's better than refrigeration, right? All you need is the one loaf. Or grab a stone, turn the stones to bread. That's right. So this, I, I, this could actually be a very real possibility. Or thirdly, maybe they're playing this part for the sake of the crowd. Because they've seen the miracle before, but the crowd hasn't. They're seeing it, but the crowd hasn't. Consider that they now have a role as the disciples. Are they playing a part? Not... When I say playing a part, I'm not saying anything phony or anything dramatic, but but truly in the opportunity. Is this their part? Do they ask this question? Is this their line in the drama, as it were? Now, he's been teaching them for three days. And when we look at verse 32... Jesus called his disciples to him. Where have they been? Were they not in the classes? See, the people are there, but the disciples have not been. What have they been doing? And so then he calls them in. And it seems to me that the the introduction of the disciples into this scene to put them in the same uh, in the same um, audience here with the crowd so that everybody is hearing what's taking place he calls the disciples to him and said i feel compassion for the people and so this is his line to them and these people are observing and jesus is preparing for the miracle and the disciples are they have they say their line and what if it's not a lack of faith on their part what if this is their 
line to say. So that together, Jesus and the disciples are setting the stage for this crowd to observe the miracle. Are they playing a part for the sake of the crowd? Do we have examples of this in the scripture? Do we have examples where such teaching can take place? And we saw the one on Sunday where the uh, the eyes were opened of, of Gehazi or of Elisha's servant there when they were surrounded. And it becomes the teaching opportunity. Oh, it's an interesting thing to consider. All right. The uh, this this can be highly, uh, highly. Uh, instructive, this is a teaching method. And remember, Jesus was a prophet like the Old Testament prophets. Why didn't Ezekiel lay on his side for 40 days and then roll over and lay on his other side for uh, for the 290 days? Why did the why did the the prophets of old do the the pantomimes and the theater and the it, it was not phony it was not artificial it was not designed to be uh manipulative it was designed to be communicative and this may very well be that it may have been just having fun with one another i think that jesus and mary were having fun with each other at the wedding that she said they're out of wine he said what's that between me and you or we would say in modern idiom big deal what's a little what's a little wine between us see and he does the miracle says no problem I think all too often we view these questions, or, or translators, translators view these questions as being lack of faith questions, like Mary's mother, and, and, or Jesus' question being, that's not my business, none of my business, what are you bothering me with that for? And they, 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 they translate that text as if Jesus is being rude to his mom, because they, they don't handle the question as in, in, the, in the proper way. I think the same thing here. They take this question where they say, well, where are we going to find food? And all you've got to do is put a little tone of voice in there. Like, well, gee, Lord, wherever will we find so much food? Right? And as a, as a matter of, not, not theater, but as a matter of prophetic teaching, that's going to have an impact in the 4,000 crowd here. See? And... Uh, Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? They don't have to say, oh, well, let me go check. Or let's, and Andrew says, well, there's a young lad here who's got five loaves and some fish. No, they know immediately. We've got seven. We've got seven. Are they playing a part for the sake of the crowd? All these are questions that we want to consider. And, and then fourthly, what have the disciples been eating this whole time? <laughs> what has Jesus been eating for these last three days? All the evidence points to the fact that either they haven't been eating the whole time or have they been multiplying the loaves as well? What have they been doing for the last three days? Why do they only have seven loaves? To split between the the 12 of them? There's more than 12. There's at least 14 because Matthias and Judas are here. And uh, and probably there's, there's more than that. The leading women. Uh, possibly up to the 70. There could be a, a large crowd of disciples here, beyond the 12. I think you have to have it as, as a minimum the 14, because the two they put forward in, in Acts chapter 1, obviously we're here to witness this event. So there's at least 14 plus Jesus, and I think that there's more than that. Right? There's got to be more than that, because the two they put forward to draw lots from were only two out of a group that qualified that had witnessed every miracle. So... What have they been eating this whole time? What has Jesus been eating the whole time? I think there was a lot more loaf multiplication than the scripture tells us about. Anyway, um, as before, point eight, we're going to wrap this up today. As before, the disciples are the table waiters. The disciples are the table waiters. I used to love it. When I was in high school and college, I, I, I was a waiter. I, I served tables. And there's a tradition of that. It goes back to... Uh, goes back to Jesus and the disciples here. I never experienced a miracle of food being multiplied. It would have been handy on an occasion where uh, you actually accidentally dropped the meal on between the kitchen and the, and, the, and the table out there. And you think, oh, my goodness. And you've got to run back to the cook to say, uh, you know, would you mind fixing me up another plate there? I <laughs> seem to have dropped that one. But think how quick. If you just multiply the, the, the plates and boom, here's the food. There you go. 
So as before, the disciples are the table waiters. You can compare the Matthew records from chapter 15 here back to what happened in chapter 14. Compare the Mark records, uh, chapter 8, back to what happened in Mark chapter 6. Once again, the meal is satisfying, and once again, leftovers are gathered up. Once again, the leftovers are gathered up. So the miracle itself, as far as the, the accomplishment of it, details are identical. Difference being the number of people that are fed, the number of loaves they started with, and the uh, amount of leftovers. Give you time if you want. You can chart those down or you can hunt them down yourselves. The verses in Matthew 15 is verses 35 and 36. You can compare it back to 14, 19. In Mark 8, the verses are 6 and 7. You compare it back to chapter 6, verses 40 and 41, where the disciples are the are the table waiters. Uh, when the mention is made of the meal being satisfying and the leftovers gathered up, in Matthew 15, it's verse 37. Back in chapter 14, it was verse 20. In Mark, it's 8, 8, compared to 6, verses 42 and 43. So there you can link the scriptures and you can go back and... Uh, and examine them. Finally, the feeding of the 4,000 miracle was less miraculous. Oh, I forgot to subscript and superscript the F and the K there. Oh, well. The F4K miracle, the feeding of the 4,000 miracle, was less miraculous than the feeding of the 5,000 miracle. Why? Well, because you started with more loaves and you fed fewer people. And you had less, less uh, as far as the leftovers are concerned. The five loaves fed 5,000. That's quite a bit. That's feeding a thousand with every loaf. And you had 12 baskets remaining. The seven loaves fed 4,000. So on a loaf per crowd basis, each loaf was less than the uh, less than a thousand, whatever 4,000 divided by seven is. I didn't divide that out. Whatever it comes to, it's about it's about 600 or so, under 600. Do you care? Does it matter? Is it over six? No. All right, calculator. 4,000 divided by... No, I'm going to do that. Divided by seven equals 571 571.42857 there you go cutting edge what pastor in this country does that so it's it's less impressive of a miracle when he fed the 5,000 five loaves fed 5,000 that's easy math one one loaf feeds a thousand people but when seven loaves feeds 4,000 you only have to split a loaf 571 ways it's almost half See, it's almost half, 571 compared to 1,000 per loaf. He did a lot more multiplication in the feeding of the 5,000, and he had more leftovers, 12 baskets remaining as opposed to 7 baskets remaining. All right. What are we illustrating? This incident serves, these incidents serve to illustrate the a fortiori logical argument of our redemption. Remember, this is, a, this is one of the most important principles we have called a fortiori if he can do the greater then he certainly can do the lesser if he can feed five thousand with five loaves obviously he can feed four thousand with seven loaves the latin phrase is a fortiori from the stronger obviously if you can do the stronger if you can run 20 miles you can run a mile if you can run a marathon then the hundred yard dash is, is within your capabilities. The reason why that's important, of course, when you read the book of Romans, is you realize if he can sacrifice his son to redeem sinners, what can he do now in the Christian way of life to provide for children? He's already done the hardest. He's already done the pinnacle of divine work. Anything now on our behalf compared to the cross is, is easy. 
He already sacrificed his son while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And if he's done that while we were sinners, if he did that, what can he do now that we are redeemed and regenerate his children? Identified with Christ, baptized into Christ. I mean, he did that when we were separate from Christ. Now we're baptized into Christ. What can he do on our behalf? This, this concept of a fortiori, you can, I know Colonel Thiem did so much teaching on, on a fortiori, but if you can get that concept, having done the greatest, anything else now is simple. Absolutely simple. All right, that takes us to the top of our hour. I don't have time for questions, but if there is something that uh, comes up, bring it up tonight. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this miracle. Thank you for the reminders that, that uh, your grace is sufficient, the provision is there. Thank you for uh, the reminders that if uh, the disciples are a little bit thick and they can't learn it the first time and they don't learn it the second time and they get chewed out the third time, Father, I thank you that you teach us and you do so with repetition and you do so until it gets uh, very clear that we understand what it is you're trying to get across. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.